and welcome back to Contocast. My name is Cat Boyd. <laughs> I'm with my co-host David Jameson. How's it going? Yeah, sorry, I'm a bit rusty because mm-hmm. it's been a while since we did a since, pod. Since you've introduced yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've not done a pod for I think over a month. Mm-hmm. Um, over Christmas and New Year. Um, and partly, well, mostly that's because I've been away globe trotting. Mm-hmm. Um, down under. I've been down under, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been in Dubai, and I was in Australia visiting my rallies, as they say. In Do they really? Rallies? Oh, they shorten everything. Right. Mad. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, and of course they say thongs instead of flip flops. Which oh, is, that, that would, yeah. I mean, pants for trousers and thongs for flip-flops is genuinely confusing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Do they also say, uh, chuck another koala on the barbie? That's a really inappropriate joke, given <laughs> the plight of some of the koalas right now. That's how I'm segueing into the discussion of the... Uh, well, well, i tell you what, let's, let's deal with uh, the Gulf states first before we get there. <laughs> Do you know... We obviously you've kind of got to do a stopover on your way to Australia. Like you mm. can't fly direct to Melbourne yet, but uh, the best stopover to do is the Dubai because you can go Glasgow to Dubai. Um, and I uh, was really skeptical about going there because because I've read the Guardian. Mm, uh, like <laughs> I know how how evil Dubai is. Mm. Um, but obviously, like, I know that genuinely there are horror stories about, like, workers' deaths and slavery and, you know, and I I get that, but I can't deny that I really loved it there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is like a, there, it's, there's an aspect of it that's a giant Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really shiny and glittery and over the top, but it's like nouveau riche. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Some like there's, there's a weirdly classless element to it, despite well, the obviousness of yeah. the class system. Yeah, I mean, like the Arab men just dress like a lot of them dress in their national dress if they're civil servants or public workers. Um, you know, anyone on a construction site or in retail, we're not Arab. Like they're obviously in really low paid work. Um, do you know I mean if you can call it work? Like I'm sure some of them are. Yeah, I've had their passport season and live on a camp. Um, but there was something about it that, like, I felt dead safe in. Mm-hmm. Which I, it's probably I, a very safe part of the world. Well, yeah, that's because yeah. if you do anything wrong, you will go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there's no shouting, there's no public nudity, there's no public displays of affection, there's no inappropriate clothing. Like, I think that they are very strict rules, but they are also, like, very clear do you know what I mean? Like, everyone was dead respectful. Like, when I went to Old Dubai, we went to the souks. Like, everyone was... Do you know what I mean? Like, I've been in... I've tra- The last time I travelled quite far, I was in um, Malaysia. And do you know what I mean? Like, there was points of that where I was like, oh, actually, it's like a woman on my own. I feel quite edgy here. Mm. But, like, being in Dubai, it was just like... Everyone was, dead, like, really respectful. And do you know what I mean? I was trying my best to, like, learn about Old Dubai. Which mm-hmm. is very much a sort of like, 
hey, we struck oil and now we've got loads of money, so we're going to build some really trashy extensions. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get, because in our last podcast, I was just back from Vietnam and I'd stopped over in uh, Doha, which is a similar situation, smaller, but it's it's a similar sort of time. Did you get the same feeling I did of simultaneously that the kind of fear of that kind of brave new world type thing, right? Because it is a very sanitised society. It is a very, like you say, there's a really surreal element to it. It's unbelievably cr- clean mm. and sober and peaceful and quiet. Mm. But also the slight dread of seeing a dictatorship and it works. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's a slight yeah. horror that comes from that. They're, they're realising that there's no essential relationship between democracy and capitalism. And that is a p- well, very particular form of, sort of petro-capitalism. But yeah, I mean, this is partly why I really love to go to China, mm. is to actually see that exact thing in action. You know, the Brave New World, um, AI you know, and the impact that's going to have on work and things like that. And that's an area that I'm dead interested in. But there's, like, stuff particular to China, which is about the technology that's being developed by the state in order to have this social credit system. So for anyone who's seen that episode of Black Mirror where people rate each other on their politeness or trustworthiness, like China are actually developing. This is an app for consumers, um, or citizens, rather, where... When, you be, when you're more trustworthy, you get access to certain things. And if you're Absolutely, untrustworthy, yeah. then you are denied access. And yeah, some takes on it in the West are very much like anti-China. But when we actually look at our own technology platforms, e.g. Facebook... Mm-hmm. which I know everyone is banging on. Again, I read The Guardian. <laughs> like Everyone's always banging on about how evil Facebook is. But there's actually, I was um, looking at a piece in the, in the London Review of Books, um, which was about some of, it was about China and Facebook's technology. Obviously, China have never let Facebook be part of the, the Chinese internet. You yeah, can call it that, yeah. but that's always been censored. Despite how many times Mark Zuckerberg has like tried to suck up to the Chinese authorities, like they're talking about like learning their language and like calling his children Chinese names or whatever the hell he was doing. Like he's constantly embarrassingly trying to suck up. Um, but do you know Facebook has this? You know they have that facial recognition software. Oh God. So you know when you go on Facebook. And it will bring up a picture and I'll have a square around it and I'll say, is this you? Do you know the thing I'm talking about? Yeah. What Facebook can also do is it has a patent on this type of technology where, see when I take a picture of you on the camera on my phone, it's not clean camera lens. There will be like little specks of dust and some little scratches, right? When I take that picture of you, they will show up. I mean, they're very subtle, but they will show up. And then I take a picture of, say, <clears throat> I don't know, myself. And I put them both on Facebook. Facebook can recognise that they're taken with the same camera mm-hmm. so that we will know each other. Like, so even if they're put up in different accounts, Facebook is able to tell that we must know each other because we've had our photos taken on the same camera no, because weird, it detects yeah. these specs. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is all like... This is all the kind of like futuristic... like. Surveillance capitalism. Yeah, surveillance capitalism stuff that I'm really interested in because I think it's going to... I think it's going to arrive not as technology, 
but as a kind of almost a common sense because by the time things actually like when the technology becomes real it's no longer described as technology Mm. you take something like contactless paying contactless I remember when that came out and being like paying by contactless card you just tap your card you don't have to sign you don't put your pen in you just tap nobody is going to use that that's so open to fraud Mm -hmm. right one month later tap 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 and everything yeah yeah do you know what I mean? Because it's not technology anymore. It's you know, just something you do. Do you know at Central Station, right? Sometimes when I'm taking the train into the south, I tap... Do you mean the south as in the south side? South side, yeah. <laughs> not the deep south. <laughs> <laughs> Battlefield, right? I uh, I sometimes tap my train ticket on the back. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like There's a little yellow card bit on it. Yeah. And I sometimes <laughs> walk by and tap. One time I did that, right? And one of the sort of the ticket people was just looking at me. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> another moral. <laughs> but you know what you know they're for? Was, like your like tappy Scott Rail yeah, cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was doing it with one of the With a paper t- ticket. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not just once, insistently. Do well you know when what I mean? say like you know, these things become common sense, I mean to most of us. Yeah. yeah. You're not a technology guy though, <laughs> no, are you? No, no. Yeah. I always like right sort of overarching memory of you when we first became pals was always your phone situation. Uh-huh. You always had like some sort of phone sketch. Like you either had like a kind of like bricky thing or... Yeah. One of those get... Nokias, those blue Nokias that were around yeah. for yeah. yeah. I mean, I really like those phones. I like yeah. the idea of like not having all of that stuff, all the stuff I now have on my phone on it. Um, and during the election, I had like one of those little Nokia type phones, which I called my bat phone. Yeah. So it was during the rise election, twenty sixteen, <laughs> where I was like, I cannot look at Twitter any longer, and yeah. I would have that secret number that I think you had it, a couple other people had it, so I could go off the grid. But yeah, you always had like some kind of phone sketch. Yeah, yeah. It took me a long time to accommodate to the era of the mobile phone. Yeah, I only got a mobile phone. Actually, I was quite a late adopter mm. of the smartphone. I got a, I got a BlackBerry after the London riots. Because oh, yeah. you remember everyone was talking about how they were organised on BBM. <laughs> I was like, got so <laughs> to get me one of them riot phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that is a really long way of saying, yes, I liked Dubai. Mm. I went to the Jumeirah Mosque. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the mosques that uh, lets like non-Muslims in and like does a kind of cultural education thing, and it was so good. We got to do the like, you go to the kind of like the washing station. What's it called? It's ablution. Yeah, ablution, where you like yeah. um, you wash your hands three times, you wash your mouth out, you wash your feet, you wash your legs, like very clean. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like that. It's a very like a very kind of clean religion, and like the the impact on the culture. I think is recognizable. And went into the mosque and I got to, like, I was wearing a scarf and a robe and listening to the call of prayer and someone, like, explaining, like, aspects of the religion and things like that. And it was really great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it is interesting. Though when, when I was in Doha, I felt like I wasn't in the real Arab world. Well, yeah, but, like, this is the first time I've ever been to the Arab world, like, anywhere mm. in the Arab world. So, like, I found it really... Like, I love hearing the call of prayer, for example. Mm. Like, I loved hearing that. Um, I love the 
old architecture and I even to be honest like I like some of the aesthetic of that kind of like modern like Arabic type structure yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean like I don't mean like the Burj Khalifa mm. but like that's do you know what I mean like that sort of thing mm-hmm. I didn't get to see that crazy man-made island that they have in Dubai yeah you know they have those like they have those in, in Doha as well they have those they have what they called corals or something yeah, I can't remember but it's that. yeah they've built out into the into the ocean and it's totally bizarre yeah, yeah I mean the thing is we all think that this is totally bizarre but I'm from Hamilton and Strathclyde Country Park is like a man-made pond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not like, that weird, yeah. Is it... I mean, is it less weird than, is it more weird than like East Colbright? You know? <laughs> 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 That's our version of that, yeah. God bless EK. Um, so, Which on... part of Scotland is it that called Roundabout Circles? Is that <laughs> Dundee? Up. I don't know. But that, it sounds totally basic, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a. I'm sure there's somewhere in Scotland that calls roundabout circles. Mm. Um, can someone please tweet us the answer? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, so from there to down under. Yeah, so Australia was great. Uh, just had a really nice time with my family. And what was very strange about it was I was in Melbourne and my family lived kind of like northwest of Melbourne, like maybe an hour on the train northwest. But we weren't really affected by any of the bushfires so mm-hmm. the bushfires in new south wales have been going on for a long time like they were burning like way before i went out there and um, i knew that it might it was probably going to get worse like all indications were that it was going to get worse and then the fires started happening in east gippsland and then to the west of victoria as well and um, so we were kind of like in the middle part of that so not really affected by it i mean the biggest impact was like the smoke in the city. So in the city of Melbourne, like on at least a couple of days where the fires were very severe, like that was around about just kind of New Year, just after New Year. There was one day at least where it was like when the windows in the flat were open, it smelled like someone had been burning paper outside. Mm-hmm. Like it was very smoky. My eyes were really nippy. Um, and like it was, there was warnings about air quality. But what was very strange was, and I, I mean very nicely, was I had a lot of messages from people back home. Like, so people in Scotland being like, holy shit, are you okay? Mm. Like, can you check in, please? Because I'm looking at this online. and It sort of looked like a vision of hell. Yeah. I mean. And I mean, I wouldn't underestimate it for a second. Australia's a very big place. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, which I think people do lose perspective of. But essentially, like, if you take the island of Britain and you turn it on its side, like that's like the state of Victoria. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you imagine that like as like one state, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a, it's a huge expanse of land, but there's the media reaction over there was just very, it, by the time that I got there, it was very political. It was a very much about like Scott Morris and the PM and how much he had failed like he had failed people and when I was there was when he started doing his tour he'd just come back from his holiday because he'd gone on holiday and the country is on fire he'd gone on holiday and he'd been kind of forced back under public pressure Um, and that was like the the majority of the discourse was about like his lack of action Mm -hmm. and his lack of understanding of how serious this was and it wasn't until some of those like huge fires were really like 
wiping out like significant chunks of the country and like coming really close to towns um and like mass evacuations and people sheltering on the beach and the beach is like that's the place of last resort yeah <laughs> like yeah, you yeah. don't like you don't immediately go there but what I discovered when I was there is that actually I've never really experienced I've been to Australia before but never at this time of year mm. um so the weather <laughs> I mean it was in the city it was like 43 degrees one day like oh incredibly like unbearably hot like I actually at one point I was like very not upset right? but I definitely had a moment where I was like what am I doing why mm. am I here like ah oh. I was just very dehydrated it turned out <laughs> I had some kind of crisis um but it was also very very windy like oh, yeah. the wind was and you know here like when you're having like a winter's day in scotland and it's cold outside it's like really freezing and then that wind comes and you say oh, i'll cut you in two because it's like sharp and cold mm. well this was like the exact opposite it was like being inside a fan oven <laughs> and the winds were high yeah. and you could imagine like how quickly that fire would spread under those conditions so then you have like storms lightning you've had a five-year drought in some places you had a complete ban on burning off so like before it gets to like bushfire season like some farmers would burn off parts of the land to try and control bushfires when it gets that hot um that had stopped in some places um so basically the bush is like kindling mm-hmm. so as soon as something happens and a wind with that speed and everything being so dry it just spreads really quickly see the political backlash is that about um, is it about climate change or is it about just a lack of management once the fires had started it's both the greens are like much bigger in Australia than Mm -hmm. they are in the UK they're Mm -hmm. seen much less as a, a fringe I would say Right. Um, is that because the Australian Labour Party is quite crap? The Australian Labour Party has a very, I would say, it's a, a, not an expert on this, but it's quite, quite a complicated history when it comes to uh, race and immigration. Right, like, yeah. A lot of Labour unions um, in Australia as well supported the white Australia policy. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's like some... It's more like a colonial Labour Party. I mean, that's they have a history like that. Yeah. I mean, quite compromised. But there is like obviously there's always there's been a big green movement in Australia because that's where and this sounds like really nineties pattern, but like that's where there's the big hole in the ozone layer. (laughs) But that's true. Like that's part of the the reason why there's like so much. um, There's so many environmental problems there, and there was like very high rates of skin cancer and things like that Mm. is because there's like very little protection from the sun's rays, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so. It was a mixture of, like, the same stuff that's infecting, like, Anglophone democracies, like, political incompetence, they don't know what they're doing, like, that kind of, like, the Mm anti-politics stuff, and also climate change. Um, And when it comes to the discussions about climate change, one of the big things that almost comes up is land ownership. Mm -hmm. Because actually people lived there for (laughs) for a long time and managed the land very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually I did go to the Immigration Museum in Australia which is a very interesting mm-hmm. place 
um, and there's a new in the in the gift shop there is it was there was a big sort of like book display and they're displaying this new book called Darkie Mew mm-hmm. which is about it's written by an Aboriginal writer or First Nation writer and he talks about um, how are the first wave of immigrants they would have descriptions of going into villages where like they were actually they were houses like in the shape of kind of beehives and they would live in villages with their own irrigation systems and things like that they weren't like a sort of this it's very similar to like uh, the native american plight in the u.s yeah yeah and where it was like oh you don't really own any of the land do you know what i mean so we'll just take out like as we see fit yeah and construct kind of new reservations yeah. and stuff like that yeah. yeah yeah i mean but still there's like the the treatment of like aboriginal people is is still I mean, it's still awful, like, in terms of, like, young offenders, institutions, majority yeah, yeah. Aboriginal children, like, the the fact, I mean, they were categorised as flora and fauna. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it is crazy. I mean, it's I, I find it interesting that, um, as with, like, Native Americans in the US, uh, the rates of things like alcoholism are in some of those communities unbelievable do you know there are some Native American townships and stuff where basically all adults yeah. and some children are alcoholics yeah, there's huge rates of addiction yeah and like there's been some really dodgy chat about this like I remember particularly like when I was over there when I was like 19 like reading stuff that suggested that it was to do with like the Aboriginal constitution like physically like their biology can't really process alcohol and things like that Actually, now, what is becoming a more mainstream view is that there is a collective trauma that has been suffered on these people. So the way that, like, now, like, we're beginning to understand things like addiction is, like, well, it's actually to do with trauma. I mean, obviously, Australia has, like, its immigration policies are quite famous. So there's actually a museum. Infamous, yeah. Um, Does it cover... Modern developments, does it cover this mad fucking island? No. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I I mean, it's... The bulk of it is kind of about the... Like, British immigration to Australia, the white Australia policy, but it doesn't really go into... Oh, the current (laughs) sort of... Yeah, because it's too politically sensitive. Yeah, Yeah. it is too politically sensitive. I mean, but what was interesting was when I was coming out of the museum, I was speaking to a member of staff there, and he was like, oh, how did you enjoy it? Um, And I was like, oh, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, It really cements some of my views about Britain. (laughs) Because it does, because a lot of this is sponsored by the British state. It's sponsored by the... The, it's the, the, mo- the monarchy, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and you have pictures of like the white Australia policy with the Queen at the top, yeah, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's not really that long ago. Yeah. Like there was a poster from like I think it was like 19, 1910 with the Queen on it, and it was all about white Australia, and it was a sort of folk song they were trying to make into a thing about white Australia, the white man's land, and all this stuff, right? It's just really not that long ago. Um, so I was talking to him about. British and he was like, oh, where are you from? And I was like, Scotland. And we just were having this conversation. And I was like, and again, like, was reminded of the fact that Scotland has nothing like that. 
Mm. <laughs> we have no museum of immigration. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that there should be something in the central belt, particularly, and I don't, I'm not just talking about Irish immigration, but yeah. also from the Highlands. Yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't know that's why that bit of central station in Glasgow is called the Heelanman's Umbrella. Oh, yeah, right? because yeah. Well, there's there's two versions, which is very much in keeping with Scottish history. <laughs> there's the that's where the the Highlanders would, would hang out and sing, and you know there would be great camaraderie. But there's the other version, which is that's where the Highlanders waited for work, mm. like in particularly during the like the First World War, Highlanders would wait there for when women went into Central Station because that's where bodies were brought back through Central Station in Glasgow. Women would go pull back the covers to see if it was their loved ones. And if it was, well, they couldn't. It's called a dead weight for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> like they couldn't carry the bodies out. So they would go outside into the Helaman's umbrella where the Highlanders would be. And they would pay these men to bring the body mm-hmm. up and out of the grounds of the station. So like we don't recognise any of that stuff. So whilst that museum in Melbourne is not by any means perfect, mm-hmm. like... At least it's a start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you look at the trials of getting the um, Irish famine memorial and all that stuff on the go. There is, there is sort of no, no kind of public support for knowledge about things like immigration, uh, like you know, or slavery, slavery, like that yeah. sort of thing. Anything to do with the empire, either famously, um, of which Glasgow was a major. Yeah, we're hub. just not, we're not taught about that sort of stuff. No. And I mean, like, I'm not even banging on about it in a sort of, like, lefty sense, but it's dead interesting. <laughs> like, it's, re- it's genuinely interesting. Yeah. You can't really know the history of a city like Glasgow unless you understand it as an empire city. Yeah. yeah. And I, like, at school I remember doing history, and I just remember doing the Second World War. Like, that's all I remember <laughs> is the Second World War. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the institutions of the British Empire. Oh, yeah. Megxit. 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 Yes. Um, General thoughts on Megxit. Well, first of all, I love the portmanteau. Yeah. yeah. This is um, Meghan Markle, of course. Uh Meghan's exit from Mm -hmm. the UK. Yeah, from the royal Um, family. What's your From the Adams family. From the Adams family. Uh, I I mean... (laughs) Uh, I always thought I even thought back at the time of the wedding right do you remember the wedding and getting up the next day right I successfully ignored the coverage right and I don't know read a book all day and just turned the media off or something and uh, the next day I went out and every single front page was the kiss or whatever right and it was everywhere Um, and I remember thinking and and when I say every front page I mean I went to my local Tesco or whatever, and of the 20 titles they had, every single front page was identically the same with a very similar headline. And it really kind of uh, rammed home the poverty of the media in this country. Anyway, though, uh, I remember thinking, what a commodity they are, right? And everyone's making money out of it, except for them. What, how annoying must that be, right? And I t- think about how perfect they are as a commodity, right? So, uh, glamorous American Hollywood actress, right? Prince, the non-bald one, right? 
of of the most famous royal family in the world, right? New world sass meets old world, you know, kind of, you know, kind of old old world charm, right? Yeah. It's literally the stuff of Hollywood film scripts. It's literally. It's Disney. Uh, it's Disney. It's a Christmas prince, uh, but with more kind of baying mobs. It is uh, Notting Hill, but with at least yeah. one non-white character, right? <laughs> so it's Notting Hill for the 21st century, except the uh, glamorous actress is marrying a prince, right? So it's, and think about it, right? It's the centres of the of the Anglophone world. LA, yeah. London, it's the biggest cultural market It's also in the got world. that real kind of like, you go girl yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe to it. Like, so it's She's bringing a bit of sass like, into it's it. It's not yeah. just sass though, it's a little bit girl boss. Yeah. Because there's that, do you remember when like, there was the lead up to the wedding and there was that picture of Meghan Markle as like an 11, 12 year old girl and she's mm-hmm. been on a school trip and there's a picture of her outside Buckingham Palace. Uh-huh. As like a kind of awkward teen, right. and everyone was like, "Oh, girls can do anything! Yeah, 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 like yeah. you can yeah. go to Buckingham Palace, but then you can marry a prince. Dreams do come true." Yeah. And I'm like, "Okay, yeah, right." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the level of the culture war yeah, that we've now reached. Um, <sighs> and and I think I think there was always a resentment that, as I say, uh, a foreigner bagged the one with hair. Right, uh, and the one who looks like uh, a famous tennis player rather than the one that looks like his dad, right? So I mean, it's pretty slim pickings, right? Yeah. But if you had to, if you had if you, to, like ranking them, like in order of most attractive, don't forget Prince Andrew. Unless you're like into, ne- unless you're into necrophilia, you're not going to pick <laughs> Philip, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's basically gone weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> um, uh, Charles, I mean, he's just—he's not an attractive man. He doesn't—he doesn't scream sexual being, does he? No. Um, <laughs> Prince William, that—that that premature balding stuff is fucking tough going. It is, man. Yeah. I think you get it from your maternal <sighs> grandfather. So All right. It's passed along. Yeah. Is Charles has still got a healthy head of hair, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, I suppose he does, yeah. Well, I always picture him as, like, because uh, I always picture him, like, with Diana. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? I still picture him with hair. Yeah. She yeah. was a fascinating cultural icon, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, Harry's definitely the best looking. Yeah. Um, And she's come in. Uh, she's stolen him away. A lot of that kind of reaction and resentment around this kind of stuff as well is... You gotta see it through the eyes of someone who's into the royal family, right? So imagine you're someone you're poor, right? You don't have a lot of money. Um you give a lot of loyalty to the royal family, in return you get nothing, right? In a way though, um you want that, right? You want them exalted and, and out of touch, right? Then someone comes along from this different world. She has not bowed and scraped. She has not given them the tax money, right? She is a foreigner. She's not even British. She's not even white, right? And she comes along and marries the one we're here. Like you, you have like that is going to cause some some reactionary resentment. But the but the thing under underpinning all this, right, is 
in the end, they they are a fabulous commodity. They're oh. worth a lot of money, right? Yeah. And they can't get access to it because they're a nationalised industry. They're a national asset, right? They need to detach from the public purse. And as they have said, gain financial independence, which is another word for mega bucks, like, dollar signs. This is the thing is like, but I feel like there's been this sort of story about how they've been bullied out of Brexit Britain, mm-hmm. which I think is utterly barmy. Yeah. Right? What's happening is that they have dollar signs yeah. flashing in their eyes. Yeah. Like, this is a, ultimately a victory for neoliberalism over yeah. conservative institutions. You've got to laugh at conservatives. You, you said this is what you wanted. Do you know what I mean? When they were welding economic liberalism to conservative social values, what did you think? What do you think they were going to win out? The family are fucking dollar bills. <laughs> yeah. The church, God, and the family, or did you think that the thing that was going to win out was cash? Fa- yeah. Cold, hard cash. The favourable exchange rate of the dollar over the pound in Brexit Britain. What did you, what did you think was going to happen, right? Uh, and now, and this is the thing, you, you're upset that we're being ruled by children who, who put material things and fame and all this shite before their obligations to the country. What did you think was going to happen when you liberalised everything? Um, so yeah, you know, this is a liberalisation of the royal family. They yeah. are a mega brand. Mm-hmm. Like they haven't had to do a lot of work on that. No, like, but they are, like, they're just such like you say a valuable commodity. And and you need to think about other royal abdications, right? What, what was his chops who abdicated the crown? Edward, the Nazi one. Yeah, this is the, the I thing. mean, wait. The very Nazi one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the one who didn't leave it at a bunch of, you know, <laughs> Z Kyles, right? Yeah. He was actually into it. Um, he kind of soiled his brand. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that could have been... that. I mean, I mean, for a time, it was a very big brand, the old Nazism, right? But after the war, you can't sell that it's shit. Da- it's, it's a damaged, damaged yeah. brand. Um, so I think we're going to see a cultural phenomenon that we haven't seen before imagine out of this and the way the, the fucked up thing is the more dysfunctional it gets the more valuable a commodity it becomes yeah. right see the other thing like I wanted to say about like this idea of it being a victory for neoliberalism over like conservative institutions mm-hmm. like whether it is the family or the royal family like it's still a conservative mm-hmm. institution in itself is that when you actually look at p- who supports the abolition of the monarchy one of them that comes to mind is Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> yeah. like, the Economist backs the abolition of the monarchy. Like these are proponents of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Like these are the people who think that this should actually be destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, so this none of this should really be a surprise. Like this has nothing to do with being bullied out of Brexit Britain. This is like the inevitable consequences of like the erosion of these institutions. Yeah. By this, it seemingly unstoppable force. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, it, there's there's a kind of um, there's a satisfying irony in the fact that British capitalism, having seen off a rare challenge to that neoliberal model in the form of Corbyn, weeks later, that system strikes down the iconic family of the uh, of of the British state. So Corbynism. 
Oh, I don't know, just when you mentioned it there, because I was sort of Googling Prince Charles' hair. <laughs> just to see if he still does have hair. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's still... It's a little bit like plumes of smoke, mm-hmm. but it's still there. I, I mean, I, yeah. He's not, he's not like Trump or anything. He's actually... It's, <laughs> yeah, it's quite... Yeah, but it's no Prince Harry. But it's no Prince Harry. I mean, to be honest, the, the, the brand would be somewhat devalued if it was Meghan and him. <laughs> now, that would be a story worthy of a front page, wouldn't it? <laughs> Checks it. <laughs> <laughs> Checks it. Uh, yeah, so, the general election. Yeah, we were quite off with our predictions, weren't we? Yeah, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to formulate this excuse, right? Which is wishful thinking, right? Um, especially with days to go before an election. And then you don't really want to be the person who's going around saying Labour is fucked. There's an article in The Sun called Hair to the Throne. <laughs> which says, Prince Harry hair loss has got worse since marrying Meghan Markle. <laughs> you got to protect the brand. The so. Royals' balding area has expanded since he tied the knot in Windsor Castle and his hair looked thinner than ever as he greeted crowds in Bristol today. Oh, my Actually, God. Actually, he's, he's not got hair anymore. I mean, the, it's all relative, is what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Sorry, we were talking about Corbyn. Yeah, I'm just saying... In, a, in an election scenario, you don't want to be the one who's going around saying we no. are definitely fucked. No, no. I I actually like I find that those kind of people really depressing to be around. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I am not a natural optimist. Yeah. But I live in a social media bubble, mm-hmm. and I think that Labour's social media output was really great. And I mm. think it probably disorientated me slightly. Like, but see, when that exit poll came out on the night, yeah, it, like it, that was a window that I don't think I'll forget in a long time. Uh, to be honest, I mean, as soon as I saw it, I just thought we're fucked. Well, I just thought the first thing I thought was it's Brexit. There's nothing. There's no other phenomenon that can explain the, the scale of that, right? And I think there's actually in a weird. I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a, I think there's widespread acceptance of that, but quite a lot of people on the left will still somehow find a way to resist it, right? Just to put this in, uh, in context, I believe Labour lost fifty six seats just in England, yeah, and of those seats, all but two were Leave voting. No, uh, uh, was it, so it's obvious, obvious that it's Brexit, yeah. but that it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because in the lead up. Two, I mean, well, actually, well before the election, when they were talking about deciding Labour's position, there were people, sensible socialists, who had a platform in the media who were saying, if we take a Remain position, we will hemorrhage seats. Yeah. There were people who were basically subject to a witch hunt by the left called, like, right-wingers. Mosleyites. Like, yeah, all that stuff, like, because they said... We have to respect the result of Brexit. I know. There was trade unionists who were, like, trying to be no platform by parts of the left because they were like, Brexit's got to happen. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it, you would have thought at certain points in the last few years, 
that accepting Brexit was like accepting Mein Camp from the national curriculum. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, like, it was a seriously dangerous sort of thing. The really interesting psychological thing about this, as soon as the Tories won, all of that mad stuff about how Brexit would be Armageddon has just disappeared. It disappeared overnight. And a big part of the reason for that is, A, no one ever really believed it, and B, the people who were driving that argument were weaponising it against Corbyn. They were weaponising it against the left. Yeah. Uh, that's... That's why you're no longer hearing people screaming and shouting about how everyone is about to... How, how there's going to be some sort of economic collapse uh, when Brexit happens and, and, and so on. Because nobody actually believes uh, that it's true. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that's more or less all there is to say about that. Except that some people are now arguing, and it's correct, that the general election result also reflects much deeper problems in the sort of sociology of Labourism. The, the gap between the Labour Party and its working class vote in particular has been opening up for decades. That is absolutely true. The issue is that, so like there are general reasons and particular reasons for the scale of the defeat in 2019, mm. but the particular reasons sharpened to a fine point the general disintegration of the party. From the point of view of the sociological problems that Labour faces, adopting a second referendum position was the most dangerous, obviously dangerous, path to have taken. And let's not forget, it wasn't a position taken because Jeremy Corbyn thought it was the safest gamble. He was coerced into it. He was forced into it. Uh, The left of the party was forced into it by a ruling class operation called People's Vote and by its supporters within the left. I think that the Labour Party's decline is inseparable from the crisis of the British state. Mm. Like The Labour Party are a core part of the British state. Like They always will be attached to that. And I think what that's meant is as the crisis of the state has deepened, become more severe, um, like across all nations within the United Kingdom mm-hmm. is that the Labour Party has an aspect of it and I know there's loads of people who I work with on the left who will disagree with me on this but the, the Labour Party's inability to understand and explain something like Englishness mm-hmm. and the sense of an Englishness like and would always rather be British even if that means invading other people's countries for oil Mm-hmm. <laughs> they would rather be British than touch Englishness. That Englishness is a kind of like nasty, like hooliganish, yeah. like yeah. lagger louts. Do you know what I mean? And I can't stop thinking about, and I tweeted, <laughs> tweeted today because it's on my mind since Labour's like, defeated the election, is like, one of the kind of key people in Corbyn's cabinet and like in the sort of anti Trump stuff, blah, 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 was Emily Thornberry. Mm. And I can't stop thinking about her tweet from a couple of years ago. Yeah. With the van, yeah. the man's front of his house. And, an and she just flag. says, image from Rochester. And tweets that picture of the white van in the front driveway and the England flag hanging out the front. She's a clown. And it's like the disdain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's there. And it's like this sense of, I'm not saying that like English nationalism is great and we should all embrace national. That's just not my politics. Yeah. But I'm saying like that these 
things are all linked into the disintegration and the crisis within the British state and the kind of that sort of the disgust that like Labour has for Englishness over like a sense of Britishness because for a lot of people Britishness means being more open do you know what I mean it means and I know you're laughing but that's the truth it's Mm -hmm. like when I speak to my English socialist friends they're like no I'm not English I'm British because it's the same do you know what I mean like Englishness has this real toxicity to it and I think Labour's failure to grasp that especially after Brexit Mm -hmm. yeah because the Tories like I mean, really, this is why they're polarising over the Scottish independence stuff. They don't give a shit about Scotland. Yeah. They don't care. They, they, they should polarise on it because that's what they've got left. And that, yeah. like, I'm not saying that Englishness and Britishness aren't intertwined. Of course they are. Mm-hmm. Of course they are. But I think that that is in part, like, Labour's problem is that they're so intrinsically linked to the, yeah. the, the big the bigger politics of it, like this deep crisis. It's also, see that relationship between Labourism and the British state you talk about, it's also why Labour is so much less bold on on questions of constitutional change. Think, Consider this, right? The Tories launched the 2016 EU referendum specifically to keep Britain in the EU and yeah. to fend off Euroscepticism. They failed catastrophically. They split their party. A few years later, who is it that's taking Britain out of the European Union? The Conservative Party. And not only that, they have reconciled uh, a very pissed off business community to it. Right? Yeah. They're in a position to take leadership on these questions, despite the fact that the Tory party, including Boris Johnson, did not want Brexit. They didn't want this, and yet they managed to turn it into this supreme weapon with which to restructure British Mm. capitalism, right? Like, the left has to be more political. You see this stuff about going around just saying, oh, we're going to get rid of homelessness and we're going to stop kids going to bed hungry and all that kind of stuff. Who doesn't, of course, who doesn't have those aspirations, right? But that's not politics. That's charity, right? That's, that's, That's adopting this kind of stance of being this kind of paternalistic... Uh, left, who only care about the sort of moral crisis in the country and, you know, it's like Jess Phillips was saying about Scotland the other day, this famously, oh, you know, I care about hungry kids in Glasgow just as much as the one in, ones in Birmingham and all this kind of stuff, right? It's, it's absurd stuff. You need to present people with a political vision for how you're going to change society. And it's, it's actually ludicrous that so many people on the left couldn't find it within themselves to make a proper criticism of the European Union in the last few years. It's dishonest. Everyone knows it's dishonest. The European Union is something that's like, it's almost purpose-built from the nightmares of the left. Autocratic, authoritarian, thuggish, uh, ultra-free market, anti-working class. It's a horror show, right? You know what I mean? If you can't express your politics on that basis, people are just never going to trust you. Yeah. I mean, I... You know that I agree with your critique on the EU, but I'm more forgiven of people on the left for not engaging with that critique because ultimately a lot of it was about, you know, in 2016 when the EU referendum was held, a lot of it was about balance of forces. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was my position is like, I actually hate the European Union, but balance of forces... Like, I'm going to make the, the, the reality my is decision the based left, on that. But also, 
the reality is that on the ground, the people who this argument, I mean, was lost a long, long time exactly. ago. Exactly. Because, yeah. like, on the ground, there was no Lexit. Yeah. Right? I'm doing sort of scare quotes. Right? <laughs> yeah. There was no Lexit. The people on the ground who were advocating leave were insane creatures mm. who were slavering about South Sudanese and like epidemics and all this sort of crazed stuff like mm. real right wingers cutting about on Buchanan Street. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it, do you know what I mean? Like, that makes it very difficult. I think for I agree. people on the left. I, to... I, I, this is the thing. See the twenty nineteen election. I don't think it was. You get all these people saying, "Oh, it went wrong. It's some conference decision in twenty eighteen. This went wrong before twenty sixteen. Yeah. yeah, this went yeah. wrong." When at some point, silently, quietly, in the late 1980s or the early 1990s, the left quietly decided that like the EU, at just the time when it was turning into the mutant horror that it is today, right? Because it lost confidence in the idea yeah. of social change within yeah. our nation states yeah. at a demos. So this has been a defeat a very long time in the making. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, speaking of the Labour Party, the European Union... Yeah. Lisa Nandy. Yeah, this is Lisa Nandy's comment that, um, you know, she's going to look at, for examples, of where socialism has defeated nationalism, like Catalonia. Well, actually, like in the interview, she keeps using the word beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> beat nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> beat the skull of nationalism. In. Like, beat the skull of nationalism to a bloody pulp yeah. beat the skulls of pensioners yeah, yeah. standing on peaceful <laughs> peaceful picket lines yeah uh, beat the 70 year old skull of national of Catalan nationalism with the truncheon of socialism it's very uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very Stalinoid isn't it do you know what I mean I think I think she thinks that Spanish like police because it's the state and the government is pathetically centre left that that means that those thugs are like socialist thugs driving back the evil forces of Catalan fascism. It's such a it's a, such a babyish worldview. I'm enjoying this so much, by the way, because the whole country is now getting to see what we saw in 2014. Yeah. All these Blairites yeah. obsessing over quotes internationalism and socialism. <laughs> <laughs> but and I tweeted about this because see her line about the socialists in Spain and mm. how they're dealing with the nationalists. It's almost exactly the same words that Jim Murphy used. Of course, yeah, yeah. When he was saying something like, you know, the socialists are doing really badly in Spain. So this would be back during his like leadership. His socialists are doing really badly in Spain. So this is way before the PSOE, like, mm. Podemos coalition and stuff like that. Um, but then I remember, I think it was, it was a friend of ours saying, the CUP have just done really well yeah, in yeah. an election. Because he was thinking of them as the socialists and Murphy was like no I don't mean the nationalists <laughs> so like they see it like through these these kind of prisms of very old fashioned like type organisation yeah 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 saying it internationally yeah, yeah do you know what I mean like where the PSOE is part of the same grouping as the British Labour Party yeah, do yeah, you know yeah. what I mean but it's so bizarre because it's such a long time since any of oh. these organisations had anything to do with yeah. socialism such a long time. But Lisa and Andy in that interview uh, actually looks like a bot. <laughs> yeah. She's sitting I mean? there. She looks like she looks like her mind has been hijacked by the Spanish government. Yeah, like her mind has been hacked. <laughs> yeah. 
just sitting there, sort of square, saying, yeah, you know, like in Catalonia where nationalism has been defeated. She's a weird one, man, because seeing that, her worldview is also so pessimistic, right? So her worldview is like, nationalism is taking over everywhere. We look, need to look at the tiny slivers of light. It's as, as though, it's a bit like the dawn of like the fascist era. It's a bit like, uh, oh, what's that literary critic in, uh, in, in Germany? Uh, Walter Benjamin. Do you know what I mean? It's like reading Benjamin except crap language, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Hold on, did you just compare Lisa, Lisa Mandy Mandy and to Walter Benjamin? Benjamin. Yeah. You heard it here first. So, like, he's witnessing what looks like the end of civilization with yeah. the rise of the Third Reich and all this kind of stuff, right? And he's, you know, where are the little slivers of light, you know what I mean, where we can still have hope? That's what Lisa Nandy's doing, but where she's finding hope is Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a bizarre worldview. Um, I mean, the quality of the Labour leadership candidates is fucking terrible, man. Who do you think is going to win? I mean, I know we shouldn't do predictions on no, this show because yeah. our predictions are crap. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Starmer. Starmer. Yeah, I think Starmer. I mean, even even though the, the membership is supposed to still be ostensibly uh, sort of Corbynite in a sense, right? Uh, I think his campaign is going to get so much momentum. But like, I have a lot of sympathy with people in momentum who are talking about the lack of political education that's going on. Yeah, I get that because I know that. So when they're looking at the results for like, there's a lot, there's there are supporters of Starmer within momentum, like people are saying that reflects the lack of political education that momentum did. But like, I get that because you're trying to run a campaign. Do you know what I mean? You're trying to win something very concrete. Same like with radical independence, people joining the yeah. SNP and things like that. Do you know what I mean? I have a lot of sympathy for it. I think Starmer will win. Um, someone <laughs> gave me the best description of Keir Starmer um, as a an ugly man with a good haircut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, do you know the, the theory, there's, there's a rumour that Keir Starmer is the, um, the inspiration for Darcy in the Bridget Jones books. That's that's Shut true. Shut up. No, that's true. How? So that's who that's who is, is going to be the leader of the Labour movement. He just is like the the author of it knew him when he was a bit young when he was the director of public prosecutions, presumably. Really? Yeah. So he's the inspiration for that. I've character. actually never seen Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah, I've seen the I, I've seen one or two of them. I think I don't know how many there are. I don't. I don't know. So he's so in the books he's he's like. Uh, He's like the sort of like sexy one that always gets away, right? He's like Mr. Big from Sex and the City. No, you, no, no. So, 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 it, the, uh, Bridget Jones, <laughs> Bridget Jones is based, is it not, on Pride and Prejudice? Loosely. It's, it's, it's an homage to Pride and Prejudice. So she initially falls for Hugh Grant. Right. Who poses as decent. But, but actually, he's actually a snake. He's actually a snake, right? And then... Mr. Darcy, who initially seems pompous and full of himself, uh-huh. turns out to be genuine on the inside, right? Hence, mm. Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's kind of like Mr. Big from Sex and the City. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I've never, I've, I've you know, I, I, oh my God, I, I think in Sex and the City Bridget too, Jones. I think they might like go to Dubai <laughs> oh, yeah. or something. Yeah. But it's like not. And they liberate some, some local Muslim, Muslim women or something. <laughs> There is something, there is some storyline like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that there was some like deep Islamophobia going on. <laughs> yeah. um, shall we finish on our predictions for the US 
democratic candidate. Yeah, I almost I almost don't want to predict that Barney will be in the final runoff because I don't think he wants my jinx. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Power, but it looks like uh, uh, that useless snake snake Warren. uh, uh, People have seen through her basically. A complete charlotte. I wonder, like, I don't really care if Bernie said what he said. Like, I don't actually think that he said that. I think he might have said, you wouldn't win as president. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is true. Can you imagine how Trump is going to slaughter her if she is the candidate? Yeah. It will be embarrassing. Yeah, it will. Because she's a phony. She's a fraud. She's a fake. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, is like, Donald Trump's whole shtick is the I just say what I mean I don't use an auto cue so when everyone's making fun of how he speaks and like the things that he says which are admittedly absurd mm-hmm. like a lot of his supporters are like yeah well he's real yeah. do you know what I mean he doesn't like have a speech writer and he doesn't use an auto cue and he's off the cuff yeah no I mean, I... she is the definition of fake yeah 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 she, her whole life has been one long kind of charlotte and escapade she one long grift she's um, fake news she is fake news yeah uh so yes it would be ludicrous for her to be uh, running against trump biden i don't know that he will survive don't in, until we have an election we have ripped into joe biden's brain yeah. so much on this and who's this uh, the other one is too boring for me to pay attention to yeah. boot a gig boot a, oh, yeah. a judge Bit <laughs> gig, yeah. Um, there was like, see when I've been watching like clips of Bernie and he's like doing this Bernie thing, which is like, I wrote the damn bill, right? Which yeah. is like now his slogan. <laughs> um, Joe Biden doesn't know what's going on. Like, to if you watch Joe Biden when Bernie's talking, he's just smiling with his like shiny orange face. Oh, just God. like looking really happy. Do you know what I mean? Look, he's like really a, happy. He's like a... That's the worst. A pensioner on a day trip. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he looks so happy. Um, yeah, no, that that is a joke. So, I take it it's going to be Sanders or the guy whose name I can't pronounce. Bit in the run Yeah. Well, we'll see. We we'll hope see. so. Um, yeah, I think that's enough. Follow mm. us on Twitter. Retweet us. Oh, leave us a review. Mm. A nice review. Yeah, we want to. We want to see your uh, feedback. Also, we're in Scotland. <laughs> Calls roundabout circles. Yeah, we must know this. Yeah. Uh, where in Scotland? Calls roundabouts circles. I think it's Dundee. That's just anti Dundee prejudice. Tune in next week for the answer to that one. We will be back weekly. See you there. See you soon. Bye.